Uh, we're at the Brattle Theatre in Cambridge, and we're going to see Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers. And Ben will be the one describing it. Hello. Meet my friend Ben. Friend of Matthew's for several years. He's a movie buff, but with a hidden talent. And uh, I whisper descriptions of what's on the screen to him as it goes. Very quickly. Very quickly, very effectively. I have a bad habit of talking too fast, which I guess comes in useful for certain descriptions, but I try to... You just slowed down. <laughs> that was deliberate. <laughs> <It's> a... yes, <laughs> I consider myself very lucky to have a friend like Ben. Oh, we met through a mutual friend, yeah. This was years ago, when I was in grade school, and Ben was a family friend. Someone I looked up to as a kid. I'm, I should mention I'm roughly twice, what, twice your age? Or a bit Maybe, more than that? Yeah, I don't know, practically. Somewhere, yeah, around there. As a blind child in a family of Russian immigrants, my pop culture knowledge was pretty limited. I didn't know anything about superheroes or Star Trek captains or theories of time travel, but Ben did. He and his friends went to the movies together all the time, but I never wanted to intrude. I knew that someone would have to describe what was happening to me, and I didn't want to ruin their fun. But one day, I mustered up the courage and asked Ben whether I could tag along. And Ben agreed. Uh, I guess that was Avengers, the the first Avengers movie. That was our first movie together. The Avengers. And uh, I think I had invited our mutual friend Ralph and maybe one or two other people Our friend Ralph was to my left, and Ben was to my right. Ralph volunteered to describe what was happening on screen. And 15 minutes in, I had no idea who anybody was and what was going on. Things were exploding, people were yelling. You know, the usual superhero stuff. I was like, I don't know what's going on. And he's like, I give up. Ben, can you do this? And Ben, mid-movie, takes over and gives pro-grade descriptions of what's going on. And since then, he's the only person I go to the movies with. I seem to have a lot of hidden talents that are absolutely impossible to monetize. So this is just one of them. Did we go up? Uh, They're seating. So up we go. So they climb. We try to find seats that are far enough away that I can hear Ben talking but close enough so that Ben can see what's happening. It's a delicate balance. I should probably warn the people uh, sitting in front of us. Should we? Um, Then we let everyone around us know what we're up to. It's wonderful how cool people are with this. We're like, hey, we're going to be talking behind you very quietly. And they're always like, oh, that's fun. Okay, it looks as if things are quieting down, so it'll be starting soon. I lean hard to the right, almost doubled over sideways, so that Ben can whisper right into my ear. Introducing the Earth from space. And the gigantic three-dimensional words, universal, encircling the world. And then it begins. A Paramount movie presents... A large cauldron bubbling a fire with three live ducks swimming around in it. <laughs> I'm quite happy. If you've ever seen a Marx Brothers movie, you know it's meant to be absurd. Uh, 32, I think. But that absurdity makes no sense if you're blind. 
Take this scene, for example. Sounds like some very intense shuffling to me. Back and forth. Then Harpo relents, picks up the bowler, carefully polishes it apologetically, and then drops it again. Ah, but the shuffling has a purpose. Harpo passes his hat to Chico and takes Chico's hat and takes the bowler off. The vendor suddenly realizes everyone's wearing the wrong hat. And what do you know? <laughs> Turns out the scene is pretty funny. And they begin a round robin of hats going back and forth. The vendor's getting very confused, trying to keep track of everything. All that's going on there. And finally, this only vendor winds up with his own knee hooked over Harpo's hand. And then Chico plays in trick. Pretty impressive verbal display there, no? <laughs> ben keeps this up for almost two hours. It's strumming the strings. Chico on the stairs horrified. Musical numbers. It comes off his hand. He throws the phone frustration. A battle scene. Monkeys going on. Elephants charging through the forest. Until the film comes to its absurd conclusion. And they all start throwing fruit at her. Fade out. My name is Matthew Schifrin, and this is Blind Guy Travels from Radiotopia. Today, a trip to the movies. When I was four or five, I would go over to my grandparents' house on weekends, and I'd sit very close to the television, practically with my ear to the speaker. I'd watch shows like Spongebob and Rocket Power, but the only reason I'd watch them was because of the commercial breaks. You're set for adventure on New Lego Dino Island. Team up with Johnny Thunder to study the dino Those commercials were like a window into the sighted world. And now I, the great Delini, can make my own magic, like new Lunchables pizza that changes color. They'd tell me about the latest Lunchable, Lego set, or Transformer. Ten forms of the evil Galvatron. What it did, how much it cost, and yes, each set sold separately, batteries not included. TV commercials were my version of window shopping. Besides, the shows themselves made no sense to me. I'm ready! I'm ready! I knew that SpongeBob worked for Mr. Krabs, that Patrick wasn't very smart, and that Squidward was an ill-tempered clarinetist. But I didn't care, because I couldn't understand what was happening half the time. And SpongeBob's laughter wasn't much to go on. But what I didn't realize as a kid was that I was born a kind of a historic moment for blind people. When movies and television first started using something called video description. Back when we first got going in the early 90s, there was probably one or two hours a week at most of described programming. It's an incredible story, and one which I only learned recently. We even had a telephone guide where you could call our special phone number and you would hear uh, what was being broadcast with description that week. And I heard it from Brian Gould here at the National Center for Accessible Media. Um, okay, well, what are we doing now that we're, now that we're finally here? I just wanted to kind of learn more about you and video description and why why would you want to do such a thing? Of all the things you could be doing, what what made you decide to do this? 
Uh, I have my um, patented elevator sort of answer for you, which I will give you right now. Uh, I graduated college and I wanted to be a writer and I found a job where I could write and watch TV and get paid for it. The whole story of video description actually started in my hometown of Boston at my local PBS station. Part of WGBH's mission is to provide access to their programming um, to as wide an audience as possible. And so back in the early 1970s, um, WGBH invented the technology to broadcast captions for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And the first show that was aired with open captions, as we call them, was Julia Child's um, The Front Chef. So about 20 years later, in the early 90s, WGBH applied for a grant to essentially do a similar service for people who are blind uh, or have low vision, and that was descriptive video service. They started with adult programs. Nice results on the Kingston case, John. Thank you, my son. Like mysteries, dramas, and some documentaries. But by the time Brian came to WGBH a few years later, the goal was to reach a much broader audience, including kids like me. Every day when you're walking down the street. In fact, the first video description I ever heard was on a show that Brian helped describe right here at WGBH called Arthur. It's called the Descriptive Video Service. It's for people who are blind so they can watch TV. Use the remote to choose the SAP channel. Then a voice comes on to the TV show to tell you what's happening. Whenever Arthur would come on, I'd run to the television and be transfixed for half an hour. The little girl turns into a crab Because I knew exactly what was happening. My parents weren't very good at describing, but these professional describers knew what they were doing. I could trust them. I felt in the know and at home, like these describers were talking directly to me. Check it out for yourself on Arthur and other PBS Kids programs. So the, the process of description, maybe I should talk a little bit about that, tends to be you'll watch the whole program first. Normally I would never suggest a hair brain scheme like this, but... I think we should follow him. So as you can imagine, the process they developed at WGBH is a little different from what my friend Ben does. He went inside. You sometimes watch scenes for a long time, for many, many times. Normally I would never suggest normally I would Okay, scratch that. Very different. So you need to, in some ways, map out in a scene, say it's a five-minute scene. You could think of all kinds of ways to describe it. Seems like a good plan. But that's not worth anything until you know how many seconds and when there may be a pause so you could actually describe something. You know, if it's a new scene with new characters in a new place, you need to set the stage first. What was that? And sometimes there's only one second and you can only say later. (laughs) Or, you know, at night. Sunlight crests the Earth's surface as it rotates in the Milky Way. Giant gold letters revolve around the planet spelling universal. By the late 90s, WGBH started to expand video description from television to movies. Marty runs down the fire trails toward him. 
So um, we developed an, an entire business of selling VHS tapes um, with description on them. He faints and falls to the ground. Arthur was great, but the VHS tapes were a total game changer for me. A flag waves on top of a castle's tallest spire. When I was five, my mom brought one home from the local library. It was the Lion King. Now in a cartoon, a giant yellow sun rises into a golden sky. It lights up a huge savanna, a flat grassland that stretches as far as the and eye can see. And the great thing about those, Matthew, I don't know if you ever experienced those, is that you just put it in the VCR and it plays and it has description on it and you don't have to do anything. No menus, no settings, just press play. They fly over a waterfall, which tumbles over a cliff as tall as a skyscraper. The other amazing thing about these tapes is that they had braille labels on them. I remember going to the library, riding the elevator up to the third floor, and finding this giant metal shelf lined with dozens of VHS tapes. Star Trek, Star Trek, Hound of the Baskerville, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Potter Star I'd never been able to browse like this on my own before. I didn't have to ask my parents, hey, what's in this box? And that one? And the other one? I just knew. And I watched every movie I could get my hands on. Once this idea of description started to catch on, Brian and the team at WGBH helped it spread to other kinds of visual experiences like theme parks and circuses. I was down at Epcot Center many, many years ago. Even Disney World. We worked in sports stadiums and many, many museums and national parks. They developed description technologies for DVDs and streaming video. Really, as I like to say, anywhere that you can find a speaker or a, a screen, um, somewhere along the line, WGBH was probably involved in the early days of developing the accessibility for that. But perhaps the trickiest place to get video description was the place where we started out this episode. How do we make movie theaters accessible? Movie theaters. It was um, a little. It was a little crazy. When I was a kid, my parents and I would walk to a grocery store every couple of days. On our way there, we'd always pass a movie theater, the West Newton Cinema. I could tell because the marquee extended above the sidewalk, creating a distinctive echo when I tapped my cane. But even though we walked by there every few days, we never went inside, and it never occurred to me that it could be a place for me. Then. When I was seven, I was at a summer camp, and one day the whole group of us went to that same theater to see the animated film Madagascar. I remember they bought us all sodas, which in my house growing up was extremely rare. In Russia, soda was expensive, something you only had on special occasions, and I guess my parents didn't want us to take the sweet things in life for granted, hence the lack of sodas. In any case, as I sat there with my orange soda securely in the cup holder next to me, I was excited. 
I was in an actual movie theater, seeing a movie. My teacher did a fine job of describing the film, but what I really remember from that day is the experience itself. The powerful speakers cocooning you in the sounds of New York City, the smell of popcorn and the crinkling of candy wrappers, and the feeling of everyone being there for only one reason, to see this movie. The theater wasn't packed, and no one clapped or cheered, but there was a feeling of community and awe, since for most of the other campers, this was their first trip to a cinema too. And I remember thinking, hey, this is for me. The mission was, curtain opens, first performance of the film, it's going to be described. Around that same time, um, this is in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, Brian Gould was trying to make movie theaters accessible for all blind people. So the technology is one thing. You can figure out how to play a track of audio, and you can have some sort of headphone device that can pick it up and play it in your ear. Ta-da! Roll credits. But Sony Pictures or Disney, why are they going to give you an unreleased film, potentially a gigantic moneymaker for them, in enough time for you to write this uh, complicated script and record it? Uh, maybe I spoke too soon. Why are they going to give that to you? <laughs> you know, okay, so this is for people who are blind and have low vision. Okay, so how much popcorn are they going to eat? Probably not much. The crunching of popcorn is so loud, you can barely hear the description. How many tickets are they going to buy? It was, you know, blindness advocacy organizations and a lot of letter writing and just finding the right person at the right studio to say okay for the first one. And then the next one. And the next one just happened to be a big one. British Sky Broadcasting, in association with 20th Century Fox, presents Titanic, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack and Kate Winslet as Rose. Also starring Billy Zane, Bernard Hill and David Warner. Grainy black and white pictures of the mighty ship Titanic leaving Southampton on her maiden voyage. It was the second movie that we had ever done in a movie theater. Well-wishers lined the quayside to wave the ship on its way. They sent us tapes that we were able to dub in our dub facility here, and we watched the whole thing once, wrote a whole bunch of notes, six of us, I think it was, and then everybody basically, I think, took 20-minute chunks. So you want to go to a real party? In the third-class general room, an ad hoc band stomps out music on fiddle, accordion, and tambourine. They jig, they drink beer, they laugh, and they brawl. And then you would write, 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 and when you finished your chunk, you'd grab the next available one, and we just did it like that. Murdoch stares with sweat glistening on his temples. And then they recorded it the next day. I think we... That might have been even just a non-stop marathon overnight session. The ship hits the berg on its starboard bow. Whatever sacrifice, minor sacrifice we made, it was worth it because it... Who could have known that that movie would have been in theaters for that long and get us that much positive press? It, it was... It would have been a much different story. Eventually, description would be commonplace in movie theaters, but it would have taken probably another year or more for us to sort of advance the cause. Um, and that movie really helped us out. Wow. Sorry, it's just such, 
it's such an incredible feeling to to be sitting across from someone who who made your childhood basically mm. just the hours the hours i spent watching i don't know harry potter or star wars or the lion king or whatever film and just feeling feeling just there listening to this film and really being involved with these characters feeling for them rooting for them yelling no don't jump in that hole can't you see it there <laughs> and that involvement is so so important for blind people really feeling like they're there and like people care that they're there thank you thank you for caring for these total strangers who you'd probably never meet but thank you for letting blind people watch movies just like sighted people it really it means a lot well thank you very much that um i don't think i can say anything more meaningful than you just have that's why we do it see i told you this guy's the best in the business uh yeah some of the some of that, those slapstick routines were just too fast i couldn't really catch that. one thing about watching a movie with a description headset is that you're pretty much at the mercy of that technology and the person who checks the battery. When Ben and I saw that first movie together, my headset wasn't charged. But I'm glad it wasn't, because that's how I discovered his secret talent. <laughs> the part with the hats was great, where it was like, oh, wrong hat, wrong hat. <laughs> when I go to the movies with Ben, he doesn't just describe a movie, he interprets it. He immerses me in the whole world of the movie with notes about period costume or film technique. Yeah, just how marvelous that is, the way they're going. Like, look at each other, and then they smile, and then they back away, and then look again. <laughs> or, or, For him, it's like a puzzle, figuring out how to eloquently and concisely describe the events on screen. For me, it's like a performance, full of all the joys, humor, and zest that he brings. Whoever says you can't describe slapstick, they are raw. Did you get what I was trying to say about those, those horns? That Having been there as a guide okay. connects me to the world around us. How could I not? And as a blind person, this type of connection is so rare, so hard to come by, that I cherish those moments together. There are moments when I can forget about the ins and outs of navigating the world safely and just immerse myself in this experience. <laughs> And enjoy. <laughs> so he's, while he's doing the sounds, he's also kind of doing these, these facial expressions, which are, of course, completely useless over the telephone. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's all for our benefit. The end. Blind Guide Travels, from PRX's Radiotopia, is written and performed by me, Matthew Schifrin. Music in this episode is also written and performed by me. Our producer and sound designer is Ian Koss. Audrey Martovich and Julie Shapiro are executive producers. Thanks this episode to Ben Thompson for his audio description. If you'd like to learn more about audio description visit the National Center for Accessible Media at ncam.org.